want to point out a theological discovery that I make. I made once. I have never made many theological discoveries. I, I, if I have any reputation, it might be more for a speaker than being a deep theologian. Um, that's probably because I spent the first 30 years of my life on a ranch and, and uh, never thought about uh, going back to school or, or being a preacher. But I did make a theological discovery, and it changed the way that I looked at family relationships. As I travel around the country, I speak a lot to families and family conferences. And in those kinds of conferences, of course, you talk a lot to husbands and to wives about how they should be and children and parents and all of those relationships. But the theological discovery, and as far as I know, I'm the first to make this, that I discovered from Colossians chapter 3. Now, you know in Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 18, there's all that teaching about what wives should do and husbands and children. Here's the discovery I made. Colossians 3, 12 through 17 comes before verses 8 through 21. Yeah. Now, you might not have thought deeply about that before, but they come first. And it suddenly dawned on me that what Paul said in those verses were a preparation for what he said in the verses that come afterwards. So before we jump into talk about husbands and wives and children and fathers, we need to talk about relationships of the individual with God. Personal holiness is what that is about. Let me read the verses, then we'll have some prayer. Beginning with verse 12. And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Lord, I do pray that you will lead us into your word and help us to understand how it applies in our lives. For I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but at times I am reminded how I am surrounded by imperfect people. I was driving down to the airport recently and uh, going down the hill, and everybody in Idaho drives slowly. Um, that's just the rule of life there, but some drive more slowly than others. And as I was coming down the mountain road, we, I got behind one of those drivers. He was going about 30 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone and just putting along, and there's no place to pass. And I'm in a little bit of a hurry. I don't mind driving the speed limit. I don't think anything's wrong with 55. And so I would like to pass this guy, but of course we're in the mountains and there's no passing, and so I'm going 30 miles an hour. But I know that after we go underneath that railroad trestle, there's going to be a passing lane, no problem. Well, I get to the passing lane, what does the guy do? He speeds up to 60. Well, I don't want to go faster than 60, so I say, well, if he's going to drive fast, that's fine, I'll stay behind him. But at the end of the passing lane, what does he do? Slows back down to 30. And I was thinking, you know, I'm surrounded by imperfect people. In fact, some of the imperfect people are closer to home than that. 
the other morning I went out to run and uh, it's about daylight a little bit before it's kind of dark there and uh, as I went out the front door I almost tripped over Aaron's bike Aaron's nine years old and you know, every day it's the same thing. Every day I say, don't leave your bike by the front door. Put your bike in back where it belongs. You know, we go through this every day. Every day it's out there by the front door. So I stumble around the bike and I'm saying, oh, man, I'm surrounded by imperfect people. And I went out for my run and came back in and uh, started to have some breakfast. And then the phone rang and I went down to the office to answer the phone. And Jan and, and my wife and, and Aaron had their breakfast. And when I came back to get my breakfast, there it was. The milk was sitting on the table. Now, you see, 365 days a year, except when I'm here at a place like this, what I have for breakfast is a bowl of Cheerios every day. But it's not just any kind of Cheerios. You see, in the bowl, there has to be a layer of frozen blueberries first. And then you put the Cheerios, and then you pour on cold milk. Not lukewarm milk, not milk that's set on the table for a half hour, but cold milk. 27 years she's been married to me, and she still doesn't put the milk back in her refrigerator. You see, we are surrounded by imperfect people. You and I have times when we want others to change whether it's our mate or our children or our neighbors, and we want others to change quick. Well, I happen to think that this passage gives us some clues on how we can get others to change quick. In fact, I want to give about seven different ideas from this passage that will help us see that. So if you have your Bible open, look at verse 12 to begin with. Because I think it says we need to get our heart redesigned. It says, and so those of you who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, if Paul says put on that kind of heart, he means we don't have that kind of heart to start with. I mean, Paul doesn't have any business in the world writing a letter to people who are already that way. But he is writing a letter to Christians. He's writing a letter to the church at Colossae. And these are believers who have been converted to Jesus Christ, but they have not yet put on this kind of heart. Notice also it's something he can command them to do. That is, it doesn't happen automatically. He doesn't say, well, in a few years you'll have this kind of heart. He says, do something about it right now. Put it on. He uses the word to put on. It means to clothe yourself, just like you put on your coat. He says, put on this kind of heart. What kind of heart did he want us to have? One of compassion, instant help for the helpless. A heart of kindness, that is goodness with true concern for other people. A heart of humility, having a right view of who you are. A heart of gentleness. Gentleness has that, in the, in the Greek form, has that wonderful meaning of knowing when to be angry and when not to be angry. He says, put on a heart of gentleness. Put on a heart of patience, dealing with others' imperfections without vengeance or pettiness or anger. What we need, I think, is a designer's touch to our heart. You see, we don't have that kind of heart. We need Jesus to touch our heart. A few years ago, I was speaking in uh, northern New Jersey, and uh, we were in a mall, 
You know, I travel all around the country and I find all malls look identical. You know, I couldn't tell you the difference between a mall in northern New Jersey and one in Phoenix. They all look the same. And I was in a mall in northern New Jersey and uh, I needed some new jeans. I didn't take enough along on the trip. And so I went in a store, big store, and it said jeans. So I went in, a lady came up to me. She said, yes, what would you like? I said, well, I'd like a pair of jeans. Well, she said, what touch do you want? I don't know. What do you mean? She said, do you want the Sergio Valente touch? Do you want the Gloria Vanderbilt touch? Do you want the Calvin Klein touch? Do you want the Jordache touch? I said, lady, I don't care if Willie Nelson touched it. I just want some jeans. She said, the Willie Nelsons are over here. I said, what does that mean? She says, every designer has their own unique touch, their own style. And I said, what does that really mean? She said, the stitching on the back pocket's different. But there are designer jeans. Everything has a designer's touch. We need our heart touched by the designer. It has to be different, Paul says. He says, you have to do something to allow the designer, our Lord and Savior, to change your heart. I know I have had to work on that, that heart of compassion. So I grew up on a ranch, and, and um, I learned some lessons early in life. One time I was out behind a barn with my granddad, and uh, we were unhooking a wagon. Had to take a bolt out and had a big old crescent wrench that I was pushing down on. I was about seven years old or something, and the crescent wrench slipped off, and I hit my hand against the cold metal, and I started to cry. And my granddad looked at me and he said, Son, men don't cry. Well, I learned a lesson. Men don't cry. And I learned that you just don't cry. So when my father died about 14 years ago or so, I didn't cry. I mean, I had to take care of the women and children and all of that other stuff. You know, you don't cry. But I loved my father. then I had to learn that there are some things in life worth crying over, and that's okay. And I had to let the designer touch my heart and begin to change me. And I had to allow those changes to take place. I think I'm doing better in that one area. The other day, Jan came in, and I was sitting in front of the television. I don't watch much television for two reasons. One, I don't have time, and two, we only get one channel some of the time, but I was watching our one channel, and uh, I was sitting in that lazy boy recliner, and the tears were pouring down my eyes. Now, Jan often cries at watching things on television. I had never done that before. She said, boy, this must be a pretty sad program. I said, it, it is really sad. She said, what are you watching? I said, it's an AT&T commercial. One of those, welcome home, son, been gone, and call each other, and the tears were flowing. See, the designer had begun to touch my heart. We don't have the right kind of heart. Paul says, put on a different kind. Let the designer touch your heart and allow those changes to be made. Second, Paul says, we need to forget about other people's failures. Notice what he says there in verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. We need Forget about other people's failures. I think true forgiveness 
means that when people say, would you forgive me? We say yes. That means that we will never bring it up to that person again. I mean, that's what it means. I, never again will I bring up the incident. If I said I forgive you, it's, it's gone. But it means a little bit more than that. It means I won't bring up this incident to other people either. You know what it's like? You say, oh, yeah, I forgive you. And then later in the day, you say, wait till I tell you what so-and-so did to me. No, no, true forgiveness means I don't bring it up to anybody. But true forgiveness is maybe a little deeper than that. True forgiveness means I don't sit around thinking about it either. It's gone. It's over. Paul says you got to change. you got to have true forgiveness. Forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Some years ago, I was pastoring a church, and I went to visit a neighbor of mine, an older lady that didn't go to church, and, and I wasn't sure about her spiritual life, and I just wanted to visit with her. So I was there with Mrs. Cooper, and we were visiting, and I was talking about what was happening at the church. I was trying to mention some programs that we had going that I thought she would enjoy coming and being a part of. And about halfway through my little spiel, she interrupted me, and she said, Does Mrs. Coburn still go to that church? And uh, my first reaction was, well, maybe here's somebody that she knows. I said, well, well, yes, she does. Do you know Mrs. Coburn? She said, well, let me tell you about Mrs. Coburn. She said, when my Harold was in the second grade. Now, her Harold was 57 years old. When my Harold was in the second grade, I called Mrs. Coburn, because her son was in there too, and asked her to bring a cake. To a party on Friday and she said no then I said yeah then why that's it I haven't spoke to her since and that's why I don't go to church down there. 50 years now we shake our head and say well that's an extreme case well let me just tell you about your forgiveness where in the 50-year span are you? Has it only gone two years for you? Well, that's just because you haven't lived long enough for it to go 50. Has it only gone six months? Well, so you just got started on your 50. It's only gone a few days. That's where 50 begins with a few days, doesn't it? See, and we can't let that happen. Paul says we have to be known as forgiving people. Recently, I saw a little sign. I was eating it in a little little place down in uh, kind of uh, the south central Idaho. Bucky's Cafe in Cambridge, Idaho. You ever been there? Nobody's been there. Well, if you go into Bucky's and you're waiting for your meal, by the way, Bucky's the guy in the green shirt that sits down at the end on the counter and visits. His wife does all the work, but he sits down there. But on Bucky's Cafe, there are a bunch of little signs plastered all over the wall, and you sat there reading them all, and there was one that said, Forgiveness is a bridge over which you may have to pass again. A bridge that obviously you don't want to burn. We need to be forgiving people. Paul says, get that heart redesigned and be known as a forgiving person. Third thing that he says there in verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Once again, put on love. Clothe yourself with 
love. With love. Now, as Christians, we, we have a tendency to think that this is, uh, this is just automatic. Obviously, Christians ought to be loving. But if Paul has to keep commanding it, then it's not automatic. And if Paul commands it, then it means that it doesn't just happen without us doing something. We have to do it. Love isn't something that you just feel. It's something that you do. It is showing concern and compassion to other people without demanding anything back in return. There's not a lot of that kind of love around. Most stuff we call love is really a barter system. I'm going to do something for you, you do something for me, and we'll get along. True love says I'll do it without demanding anything back. Let me give you an example of what that kind of love looks like. I think it's probably one of the one of the greatest examples of love that we have. I think it happens every day in our country and every time it happens all around your neighborhood. And that is when a mom, because moms get this job, when a mom changes a diaper. I think that is pure love. Now, folks, I am not talking about a wet diaper. Okay? I'm talking about a dirty, gross diaper. See, there's no great feeling in a mom that says, I just love doing this. No, there's no feeling to it. And what do you get back in return? Nothing. You don't even get cooperation. Yeah, a few minutes later, you get another one. You get nothing back in return. That's love. Giving, not demanding anything back. And isn't it interesting how we can do that in the most adverse conditions? We can give love. We need to give that kind of love, you see, to other people. Some weeks or months back now, a young gal came into my office and she was talking about her marriage relationship. And, and it was a tough situation. She came in, she was standing, and, and I was at my desk. And it was, uh, it was a bad it was a bad time for her and she had some real hurts and concerns and she was kind of at her last straw she says i just i can't love him anymore he never gives me anything back in return and i just feel so empty and i a person just can't give without getting something back and i think that's probably true on a long run but we were talking about the short run and as I was talking with her and sharing how we've got to learn to love, to give without demanding something back, she was standing and she was scratching Thunder's nose. Now, Thunder is a stuffed buffalo that's in my office. I don't know if you have a stuffed buffalo in your office. but I was given this stuffed buffalo by a youth group once, and he hangs from the ceiling because when he sits on the ground, people jump on him and he kind of gets flat. So he hangs from the ceiling about head high, and she was scratching his nose while we talked. I said, Betty, what are you doing? She said, well, I'm scratching his nose. I said, why? Well, he looks so cute, and he looks like, you know, he wants me to do that. I said, you know what you're doing? You're showing love to that hunk of hide and stuffing who can't give you anything back in return. I said, go home and scratch the old buffalo's nose. You see, it can't happen. Paul says that's the kind of love we've got to put on. Put on love. Giving to other people 
not demanding something back in return. It is the perfect bond of unity. That kind of love. Then what does he say number four? Number four, he says, let peace control your life. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Notice it's the peace of Christ. You know, a peace with God comes upon our belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But the peace of Christ is something in addition to that that's offered to us. And notice that it says the peace of Christ should rule. Now, there are a lot of important things in our life. A doctrinal purity is certainly important, for instance. But notice it's the peace of Christ that is to rule our hearts. We should find that peace in control of all that we do in the midst of life storm. Let me remind you, let me remind you about this peace because sometimes we have a we have a misconception about what peace is. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Uh, I think the abs absence of conflict, if carried on for a while, is probably boredom. But it's not peace. You see, peace is something that happens only in the midst of conflict. So when Paul says we should have the peace of Christ, he's assuming we're in a life of turmoil. Jesus said what? In the world you have tribulation. He is assuming we're living in a stressful, anxious, uh, peace-robbing kind of world. That's the kind of world we're in. But in the midst of that, we can have peace. You see, if peace was the absence of conflict, then Jesus seldom had any peace in his life, did he? I mean, when in his ministry, once he began to activate that ministry, when did he have absence of conflict? Never. Was he at peace? Of course. So we have to get rid of the idea that we, we take away all conflict and then we have peace. Peace is what happens in the midst of conflict. A couple of years ago, I was down in California visiting my sister, and uh, we grew up in California. And uh, I was—I remember I was uh, having breakfast with her at a restaurant the day after. It was the day after Thanksgiving, and I can't believe that we went out to eat the day after Thanksgiving. But we were in a restaurant, and we were sitting there. And we were visiting, and I only have one sister, no brothers, and so we, when we get together, we have a lot to talk about. We were we were talking and visiting, and as we sat in this little restaurant, the um, window vibrated like a sonic boom. You know how they kind of wrinkle back and forth a little bit. And we were sitting there, and at the same time that was happening, the chandelier up here kind of swayed a little bit, and silverware kind of tinkle, 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 like that. And I, I was eating, and I looked at my sister, and I said, oh, it's probably an earthquake. She just nodded her head, and we kept talking. You see, we've grown up in that. That's The earth trembles. No big deal. But the people next to us, when they heard all of that tingling and heard us mention earthquake, they jumped to their feet. They were looking for an exit. I turned and said, you must be from out of state. <laughs> oh, yes, what do we do now? I said, well, by the time you know it's here, it's over. So don't do anything. Finish your breakfast. You see, peace in the midst of turmoil. Now, there are some spiritual earthquakes you and I go through. There are some relationship earthquakes that hit us. There are some financial turbulences that come into our life, and we can have the peace of Christ right through that. In fact, I've gotten to the point in my life 
where I look at that turbulence and say, this is a great opportunity to experience Christ's peace. You got the world crashing down on you. Just remember, you have a great opportunity to demonstrate what the peace of Christ looks like. Now, if nothing is happening to you, if you're sitting in your home on the hill and everything's going wonderful and smooth and no turmoil and no crisis and no stress, your non-Christian neighbors look at you and you say, I just have the peace of the Lord. And they say, big deal. If I had all you had, I'd have peace too. But when things crash down on you and they know it and you can say, I have the peace of the Lord, they're impressed because you have something they don't have. What does Paul say? Let the peace of Christ rule, control you. Number five. Paul says we need to make a habit of giving thanks. Just the last three words in verse 15, and be thankful. And be thankful. I think thankfulness is something that uh, controls our, our whole person. That is, I think there is a decision of the will to be thankful. I think you have to decide to be thankful. You know you have to decide to love somebody, don't you? It doesn't just happen. You decided to love your mate, and you decide to keep on loving them. Thankfulness is in that same kind of category. You decide to be thankful. It's an act of the will. You can decide to be an unthankful person. If you've ever uh, been a pastor or stood greeting with the pastor at the church door, you know there are some people in your church that have decided to be unthankful people. I mean, every week there's just a complaint, never thankful for anything. But they have decided to be that way. We are to decide to be thankful people. It's a decision of the will. But it's also an expression of the lips. That is, we have to tell others how thankful we are. We have to express that thankfulness to God. I was with a friend, uh, elk hunting friend named Jodian, and uh, he's going through some tough times and uh, has a layoff at the lumber mill and so uh, worried about some finances. And We are talking about giving the Lord thanks. And he said, uh, this time in my life, he said, I just don't have anything to be thankful for. He had sort of made a decision. There isn't anything to be thankful for. And we were, I was eating lunch at his house, and I just finished a big old hunk of elk meat that his wife had cooked. And she brought out the dessert. Huckleberry cream pie. You cook a lot of huckleberry cream pie around here. Huckleberries are like blueberries. They're purple. Tastes a little different. There's a lot of cream, whipped cream on top. And I'm eating this pie. And Jody is, can't find anything to be thankful for. I said, Jody, how often do you eat huckleberry cream pie? Ah, once or twice a week. I said, my, oh my. You have nothing to be thankful for? I said, would you like to trade desserts for a week with me? <laughs> now, there are little things. There are big times when things crash down on us. There are big times when God does miraculous things that we're thankful for. But thankful people are one who can turn on the switch, decide to be thankful on the little things all around them. 
I was thankful for a car this morning. I was out running my, I think it was nine miles this morning. But I was out running this morning. It was dark, and uh, the street lights are kind of far apart out on the road out here. And I'm running along not thinking of what I'm doing. I'm just, I, I run and I think of other things. That's the only way you can run nine miles is think of something else. <laughs> and uh, so I'm thinking of other things. It's kind of dark. And a car comes along, and, and there were cars, so that's no big deal. But it came along at the right time because the light just shone. And I looked in the front of me, right on the roadway where I was running, was a squished raccoon. Did you see? Well, there was a possum and a rabbit and a raccoon, too. But uh, <laughs> critters of the day, I call those. Uh, from, from an old joke about a restaurant who had a menu where they served a critter of the day. It depended on what was run over along by the road. <laughs> but <laughs> so if you're ever out west and they want to serve you critter of the day, don't don't go for it. But, but I was thankful the car came along because I would have tripped over that. I wouldn't watch it. I would have stepped in the middle of it and fallen on my face, which has happened a time or two as I run in the dark. Little things you began to be thankful for. But you turn on the switch that says, I am going to be a thankful person. And I am going to look for the things to be thankful about. Good friends of ours, Bob and Darlene, said about their children, they said, you know, we were so thankful for our kids, and the Lord brought our children into our family. And, and when they were young, we had all these great plans for them. But uh, things didn't turn out like they thought. One of their sons after uh, being kicked out of the army, got a problem with uh, drug abuse, alcoholism. And uh, she said, at first, I just, it was so devastated me. There was nothing to be thankful for anymore with Bobby's life. She said, and then I decided I was going to be thankful. So I started looking for little things. She said, now I am just overjoyed anytime he comes home that he's not drunk, that he's clear-eyed that he is in his right mind. She said, I look for things to be thankful for. We have to make that kind of decision. We're going to be thankful people. Paul says it really simply, but it's tough to do, and be thankful. The sixth thing that Paul says in this passage, he says, let the thrill of God's word motivate you daily. He says it this way, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And he expects that when it richly dwells within us, it's just gonna, we're just gonna overflow with what? With teaching and admonitions and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. All of those things are gonna be a result from letting the Word of God settle down in our inner life, affect our every thought and act so much that we just get caught up in God's Word. Sometimes I hear young people say, and I think all some older people think it, they're just a little more sophisticated and don't say it. They say, I'll tell them about being caught up, being immersed in, letting the Word of God just control your life. And they'll say something like, well, the Bible's sort of boring. That is, letting it control your life is kind of boring. And I keep wondering where they're reading. For instance, if you were to read the, the stories of the apostles, the apostles were with Jesus and and they saw him do the miracles. They were there on the hillside when the 5,000 were fed. They were there when he came walking across the Sea of Galilee. They stood by the tomb when Lazarus came out. They were there when the, the authorities arrested Jesus. Some of them at least saw him hanging on the cross. 
You know, they were with Jesus day and night for three years. They were frightened. They were excited. They were thrilled. They were happy. They were sad. They were never bored. Never for a minute does it say, Peter and John got bored and went home. Never bored. We are to let the Word of God so richly dwell within us that it just begins to control us. That's what this means. It begins to take over in our life. We let other things take us over. We need to let the Word of God do that. A while back, we were at a baseball game. We, we sometimes have what we call blind double headers. You see our nine-year-old, our three sons, our oldest is 25 and married, and our second is 22 and married, and then Aaron, age nine. And that's 13 years. In case you were counting between number two and three. And you say, was that planned? Of course it was planned. The Lord planned it. He didn't bother asking us, but he planned it. Sometimes we have blind double headers. That means there's a little league game in the afternoon that Aaron's playing in and a softball game in the evening that Russ is playing in and we have to take in both games. Now, when we go to games, especially softball, because I'm, I'm trying to control myself at little league games, but at softball games, when we go to a game, Janet sets at that end of the bleachers and I set at this end of the bleachers. Now, that's her choice. But I have a tendency when I go to a ball game to want to encourage the ball players. And I have a tendency, uh, out of the kindness of my heart, to want to help umpires who might have missed a call. And I can kind of encourage them of what it should have been. And so she sits way down there because she doesn't want any part of that. And so by the time the ball game's over, I'm hoarse, and uh, she hasn't said a word. Well, at one of the games this spring we went to, it was a pretty close softball game. The score was tied. They need to win the win to win the league. And Russ came up to bat few men on, a couple outs. And I'm sitting down here yelling, screaming. All of a sudden, above the roar of the crowd, I hear Janet yelling at Russell. Come on, get a hit. And her favorite thing, and this is slow pitch softball, and so her, her thing that she was yelling was, don't hit a pop fly. That's her great fear that he's going to pop out. So she's yelling this, and I look, and I'm, I'm amazed. Because she had got caught up in the crowd, in the spirit, in the enthusiasm of the game, and it just overpowered her normally reserved kind of uh, behavior until she was right into the swing of it. Now, that's what we have to let happen with God's Word. It gets down into us, and it begins to control us. And it begins to motivate us. And our actions, and our expressions, and our words come out of that the dwelling of God's Word within. Let God's Word motivate us daily. A seventh thing then Paul says, and it comes in verse 17 that we can do, we need to do, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. You know, I think since we were little children, perhaps, we uh, have heard about this verse. And we know that we should do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. But I wonder, how do you really apply that? How do you do it? Because I am thoroughly convinced, in fact, the reason I write books and articles is because I'm convinced that we need to be doing the Word, not just reading and studying it, but doing it. How do you do this verse? How do you do everything in the name 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every word and every act. I'll give you a couple of phrases that are going to help you. One phrase, if you can memorize and teach those in your home to memorize because they can call you to account with it. It, it works really nice this way. Is a little phrase, as Jesus would say. Pretty simple to memorize. As Jesus would say. Now here's how it works. Husbands, let's suppose you're at home and you're kind of tired and you've relaxed. You sit down in a comfortable chair and you're pulling up the newspaper or maybe the news is on the television and, and you don't want to get up for an hour. You just want to sit there. And the wife's out shopping. And um, you're sitting there, you're reading the paper. You finally get to the important part, the sports page. And you're settling down to reading that. All of a sudden you hear the car come into the driveway. And you know the important. And you hear a screech of the brakes. And then you hear a crash. Tinkle, 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 tinkle. And then the door sort of And Pretty soon the front door opens. And your wife comes over. And kind of sheepishly she says, Honey, I hit the garage. Again. And you jump to your feet and you throw down the paper and you point at her and you say, as Jesus would say. What do you say? Are you hurt? You see, as Jesus would say. We can preface those tight times with those words. It doesn't even hurt to encourage your mate if they're here today. You know, next time they get in a tight, tight time, do like my wife does. She just turns and says, honey, what would Jesus say? As Jesus would say. Let me give you another example, another phrase, because our actions need to conform to the Lord's actions as well. A little phrase that goes along this way. I would like to dedicate the following act to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a wonder how that can change the actions that you have. Let's suppose, uh, let's just suppose that uh, you get up some sunny Saturday morning and, and hubby has uh, gone fishing. And uh, you get up and you discover that he cooked his own breakfast for you. And so there's bacon grease all over the stove, all over the back wall. Cereal got spilt. Frozen blueberries were left out and thawing there on the counter. You're kind of cleaning through this mess and you're wondering, oh my. And all of a sudden the doorbell rings. So you slip on a robe and you brush back your hair a little bit and you run out there and it's your neighbor. And she says, uh, oh, come quick, come quick. Our dog's got in a fight and I think your little Muffy's about to lose his ear. And you go out there and he's right. There's little muffin in the ears just hanging down, and you think, oh man, I gotta get to a vet. So you run back in and you slip on a dress and you grab up little muffin with a torn ear and you run out in the garage. And at that moment, you realize the hot water heater had busted in the night and the garage is standing in the water. In fact, it's starting to soak into those boxes of handmade Christmas ornaments over there, but you don't have time. You gotta get little muffin to the vet. You throw muffin in the car, you back up. And then you find out that hubby didn't put away all of his fishing gear and you ran over something that keeps going thump, 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 thump all the way to the stop sign. And by the time you get there, the tire's flat. 
And for the next two or three hours, you wait for the world's slowest service station attendant and then the world's most expensive vet. But you finally get the car and Muffy both fixed. But on your way home, Muffy, who's not used to having shots at the vet, barfs all over the back seat. So you get home and you start to clean that up and the telephone rings. So you leave that and you walk through the water in the garage. And as you get out there, it's the telephone, it's your, it's your sister in San Francisco who wants to tell you about her delightful trip to the Orient. And you have to listen to it as you're still in your house dress, thinking about the stench and a little muffy. Finally, she's through and you go back out to the garage and uh, you're going to get those ornaments out of the water, but you trip over a broom handle and you're laying there flat in the water and the pastor and his wife come up the front steps for a visit. And you send them to a really needy family to go visit. When the doorbell rings, and you just happen to pick up that broom handle, and you're soaking wet, and you go to the front door. And there's this little guy there and a little mustache, and he's got his suit and his bow tie, and he's taking a survey. Excuse me, ma'am. Do you work, or are you just a housewife? And you look down at that broom handle and your soaking wet dress and you look at that guy and you say, I'd like to dedicate this act to the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> you see, Paul said our every word and our every act needs to be in his name. In his name. Now, We've got through the passage, and somebody said, no, wait, 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 wait a minute. You started out saying how I can get other people to change quick. And you've talked about the opposite. All I, you've done is talk about how I ought to change. Right. Did you ever notice how scriptural truth comes to us? You want to be great? What does Jesus say? Be a servant. You want to be first? What does Jesus say? Be last. You want to live? What do you got to do? Got to die. You want to be rich? Give it all away. You want to get other people to change? You change. You want to get them to change really quick? You change quicker. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we all have areas in our life that need to be changed, that need to be more conformed to your image. I think about these seven specific areas. I pray this morning that you'll touch our hearts with one of those areas first, one place where you'd like us to begin to change more. And Lord, if we can't think of any place we need to change, have us, Lord, with enough courage to ask others around us, where can I change and be more like Christ, be more conformed to these scriptures? Lord, we want to do that for the sake of our loved ones around us. We want to do that for our own sake and our own happiness. We want to do it because it pleases you. For we ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen.